Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. I am so excited for this interview because my guest is Sarah Heppola and she is the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. She's a writer at large for Texas Monthly and co-host of the weekly cultural podcast, Smoke em If You've Got Em. I uh, was a little nervous to ask Sarah to be on the podcast because I am a huge fan of hers. Her book was published about eight months before I quit drinking. So it was one of the first ones I read in early sobriety and her story hit pretty close to home for me. I was a big blackout drinker and I have to say that in going back through the book and reading it again, prepping for this interview, it came back to me how many times I blacked out and hadn't really focused on it and wondering how many of my memories from my 20s and 30s weren't actually mine, but were stories that other people had told me and had sort of 
become my own. So Sarah, thank you for being here. Now I'm excited to be here. You know, when I wrote this book and I was kind of coming out of the the hole of my own my own drinking years, one of the the ideas I had was that I wanted a book for people that were new in sobriety because I had I found that year so incredibly difficult. So you were very much in my imagined target demo of that book. And so it's very cool. It's very cool that you found it. It's very cool that I'm talking to you now. Yeah. And I actually, I both read it and I listened to it on Audible and my first year of sobriety, my sort of safe space, because I used to rush to get my daughter to bed. She was two years old to get back to the couch to keep drinking. And I stayed in her room for hours rocking her to sleep that first year. And just with my earbuds in and listening to sobriety podcasts and sobriety memoirs, um, or memoirs about drinking because it helped sort of cement my resolve that this was sort of going nowhere good and was actually a big deal. So, yeah. Was, yeah. Was yeah. I, th- I mean, I, I think of sobriety in a lot of ways as a process of waking up, right? Waking up to the world, waking up to your own feelings, waking up to what it is that around that's around you that you may need to change or that you may need to pay attention to. But one of the the downsides of that, especially in the beginning, is that it can feel quite lonely. You yeah. know, alcohol has been this this kind of warm blanket you've been able to pull around you every night or ev- whatever. Um, and without it, you know, you feel a little bit alone. And so I think that's when these like I'm so glad that there's been this surge of these sobriety podcasts there's of course been many other books other than mine that talk to people that are thinking about quitting but i I think they're so important because they 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 kind of come in to be almost like your first companionship till you kind of build up your muscles and you get larger companionship out in the world as a sober, sober person yeah yeah absolutely and i think yours hit me like right from the beginning i was showing you my book before we jumped on, which is dog-eared and underlined and all those things, because it hit me the way Carolyn Knapp's book did. And I know you know it, uh, Drinking a Love that, Story. Yeah, that book, I was like 25 years old when I picked up that book. And I just picked it up because it was called Drinking a Love Story. And I was like, okay, whatever that is, that's mine. Like, yeah. that's, th- yeah, that's me. It me. And I remember reading it and just being like, holy I didn't know that somebody else drank like me. I mean, you know, now you fast forward many years and it's like, oh, my God, so many people were drinking like me and having those private struggles and those, you know, deep, quiet shames, you know, evaluating the level of the everybody else's glass, like all these little like personal habits that I thought of as as kind of uniquely my own. Yeah. Carolyn Knapp's book was pretty much my biggest inspiration to write this book. You know, she had done that in 1997. Uh, in, I, I still think it's the best of this genre, but yeah. you know, a lot of things had happened in culture. The in a lot of ways, the 25 years leading out from her book represent like the rise of women's drinking or at least the mainstreaming of women's drinking. You know, it became a very fashionable thing to do. Yeah. And that's something that you talk about in the book, how, you know, back in the day, It was this idea that women were drinking in secret and it was very shameful. And you talk about how it was sort of a badge of honor 
when you were drinking. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I noticed when I quit drinking and I looked around at a bunch of other books that were mostly kind of like diagnostic books around women and drinking. And they would say, you know, well, one thing you should know is that women are very ashamed of their drinking. And I was like, no, no. I mean, I was ashamed of drinking too much, but I was so proud of drinking like men. I was somebody that could hold my place. Like I could, I could go toe to toe with men. I was so proud of that from the time that I got to college. And I think it tracks along with a rise in a kind of you go girl feminism that we see coming up in the beginning of the century. You know, it's also coinciding with the explosion of marketing, alcohol marketing to women. You have that little, that little show in the beginning of the 21st century. I'm sure you've heard about it. Sex in the city. Oh, yeah. Um, and, I watched you know, it. yeah, I mean, it gets, you don't even have to watch it for that show to have been kind of burned on the consciousness of what it was to be a young, adventurous woman in the 21st century. And there was, you know, drinking was the place around which it was kind of the glue that kept female friendships together. You know, you met around the the drinks, the cocktails, you know, and then you shared your stories and you had these sort of amazing, wild adventures. And for a lot of us, you know, especially somebody like me, I'm a little more natively shy. It was, you know, had a little bit more social awkwardness. Like, how are you going to pave the path to that kind of adventure? And it's like alcohol just rolls out the red carpet. And, you know, it's it's not just beer and liquor. I happen to be drink. I happen to drink drink both of those things quite a bit. But it's the explosion of wine culture, you know, fruity cocktails, cool cocktails, vodka, everything, vodka martinis, vodka tonics. You know, you can watch your weight and binge drink. You know, good luck. Good luck with that, by the way. I tried it. Yeah. Skinny girl, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's yeah. that's going to be a blackout. That's going to be me falling down the stairs. That's how I'm going to watch my weight. I'm going to watch it tumbling down a flight of uh, metal brace staircase. Uh, but, you know, it's it's amazing how well, it's not amazing. I think it actually tracks with a transgressive spirit that was in the air at the time, which is this idea like, you know, that saying like well-behaved women don't make history oh yeah like it's no great adventure started with a salad or whatever it is yeah yeah so it's this it's this kind of rallying cry that hits that hits the zeitgeist in those decades and drinking becomes one of the central ways to kind of place yourself in the middle of the frame and um and it becomes not embarrassing to drink a lot. It becomes kind of heroic in some ways. It's funny. It's, you know, even if you drink too much, maybe you drink too much like Chelsea Handler does or like Amy Schumer does or like Bridget Jones and Bridget Jones's diary, you know, depending on the kind of, you know, your age and your, your reference point. But it becomes a sign of strength, even a sign of complication, you know, in all these TV shows that are coming out during those years, you know, what does the complicated thinking woman do at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. She pulls that bottle of wine off the shelf and she pours herself a glass and it shows you like the strain of her day and how strong she is. I mean, this is really like a sign. It's the marker of strength for many, it, you know, many, many women. And it certainly was for me until it became also kind of like 
an undoing as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I relate to that so much because I also was sort of the good girl who was always in my head and very worried about what people thought of me and doing the right thing and presenting the right way. And I went to college and I went to a small liberal arts school with a big keg culture and joined the women's rugby team. And it was a crash course in binge drinking, unhealthy drinking. You literally were celebrated for drinking, throwing up and drinking again. I mean, it was called rallying and you were, you know, you sort of the goal was to drink to blackout. Because, you know, in your book, you wrote that alcohol was the gasoline of all adventure. And I felt that way. I felt like if I drank to the point of basically blackout, anything could happen. Anything. And that was a positive in my mind. Oh, I mean, I think, yeah, it's almost like this fairy dust that you sprinkle over an evening to kind of like it's like a randomizer, like what might happen? Like there might be some adventure with a guy. I might you know, steal a stop sign, uh, you know, there might be a dance party, and I might uh, take it off my top. Like, it's it's this weird kind of like casting the dice on the table and seeing what what shows up. I'm curious, what years did you go to college? I went to college from 93 to 97. Okay, almost exactly the same as mine. So I'm 92 to 97, because I had a victory lap. And definitely in my college years, like, drinking was the center spoke of our social life. And it was also the way that you kind of like you you talked about boot and rally. I mean, I remember that. I remember how funny it was when somebody puked into the bushes. I remember holding back untold number of women's hair while they were vomiting, you know, and then and then it was, you know, funny, then you'd kind of cheer, they'd go back into the party, right? And this is, I, I think, um, college culture is changing a little bit, but that particular behavior just ramped up and up over the decades. I think it hits its peak around like 2005 yeah. to 2000. And, and, and so, you know, one of the things that people will say, you know, researchers that are looking back on that time is like, you know, college was basically a blueprint for alcoholism. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's not something that we understood at the time because like any other, any other culture, you're living inside it. You know, you can't really see anything different. I grew up with these teen movies about, you know, kids partying their face off. And, you know, that was that was freedom. Oh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That was oh you know, an animal house. That was my dad's favorite movie. He literally and he was not a big drinker. When I went to college, he literally put his hand on my shoulder and said, my advice to you is to start drinking heavily, which is one yes. of the Thick lines from Animal House. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people for decades considered that almost like a birthright. And uh, they were going to go to to college. And it was like this, these several years where they got to drink their face off. And it was like kind of forgotten about. Everybody kind of forgave your ridiculous behavior. I don't think we realized how freaking dangerous. It was. It was so dangerous. I am shocked I came out of it without any major, um, seriously dangerous consequences. And if I did, I don't remember them. 
You know, like that's yeah. what's crazy. I yeah. don't remember many, many, many nights in college. I remember hands and knees throwing up per hour. Yeah. Yeah. So blackouts, you know, because you've you've mentioned that you were a blackout drinker. I was a blackout drinker, obviously, so much so I named my book Blackout. I just want to take a minute and explain what blackouts are just because I love that. Even when I first started on this book, I was like, oh, everybody knows what blackouts are. But it turns out not everybody does because not everybody has them. And it only about 50% of drinkers do have them. And so that's higher uh, than I thought. 50%. It, and I assume that's big drinkers. <laughs> that's that's 50% of people who drink. Will have, have like when you're binge drinking, you will have blackouts. Now, blackouts come like anything. They're on a spectrum, right? But there's two specific kinds. There's the uh, fragmentary blackout and there's an on-block blackout. On-block is E-N, new word, B-L-O-C. It's a French word and it means like that's the one where like hours are gone. And that's mm-hmm. the kind that I had. Um, and like, but fragmentary blackouts, sometimes people call them brownouts. Um, they're like little pieces of the night are missing. So like maybe you remember like how you got to that club, but you remember everything else about it or like, you know, there's just like small, tiny little jigsaw pieces missing. Those are fragmentary and they're far more common. And, um, you know, actually the 50% uh, detail that was first discovered by a researcher named Aaron White, who was doing studies on binge drinking kids <laughs> at Duke University. And when he first found that statistic, 50%, he presented it. And the people that worked in alcohol research were like, this is wrong. There's absolutely no way. 50% of drinkers have blackouts. You got to go back and do this again because they thought it was more like 10. Yeah. And, uh, and they also thought it was late stage alcoholics that had them in some, in part because they'd only done studies on late stage alcoholics. Go figure. Um, but so anyway, uh, he goes back. He does it again. Once again, about 50% of drinkers and it seems to be genetically linked. They're not exactly sure why some people have a blackout and some people don't. Some people will drink to no end and they will never have a blackout. But if you do, then you know this singular horror, uh, which is that you wake up the next day usually and you cannot remember things that happened. What's actually happening in your brain is that the hippocampus, which is in in charge of storing long-term memory, gets disabled at a certain blood alcohol content. And so it's almost like you're having a conversation, but the recorder, the recorder button isn't pressed, you know, so like the conversation takes place, but there's no record of it later. So you can't recall it the next day. And, um, you know, there's this weird thing where like you actually have what's called procedural memory. And so you can you have access to things like, you know, how to tie your shoes and even more complicated things like how to fly a plane. There's like crazy stories of people flying planes and blackouts. It's just that it's not getting stored into long-term memory. So afterward, you can't remember it. And one of the tricky things about not remembering is that you actually don't know how often or how common your blackouts are. For instance, you said, you know, I had these blackouts, but I don't really know. Like, there's there's a huge element of unknowing because you don't know what you don't remember. I know for me... I wouldn't have been aware that I was having these blackouts because I had people around me that were saying, uh, do you remember when you said this? And I was like, no. 
And, you know, that's what was the initial startling realization. I mean, there's also things like, where did that pizza box come from? You know, why am I dressed in this? You know, why, why do I have all my clothes on? You know, things like that. But it's a really interesting neurological phenomenon that's been really very little covered. And one of the things that I was able to do in my book was to talk about that in, in a larger way because nobody really had. These studies had been done in 2011, 10 or 11, I believe, maybe a little bit earlier than that. But, you know, people really didn't understand what blackouts were. And people don't understand if they don't have them, they don't know that you can have these entire conversations and the next day you won't remember anything about them. Like they don't realize that you're blacked out at yeah. all. I remember like when I was 20 years old, I was in Sydney, Australia with two girlfriends. We were hanging out. We were staying at some gross hostel and we went into a bar. I met some guy, didn't know his name, kissed him in the bathroom. The next thing I remember, I woke up at his house across town. I had no idea what the address of our hostel was. I have no idea what my friends went through trying to find me. I have no idea if they were terrified. Literally woke up and was like, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea what this guy's name is. I have no idea how I got here. I was very, very lucky in that like, I happen to be a virgin. So I was like, I am not having sex with you. Like in my blackout, I was like, by the way, and was a very nice guy. Turns out incredibly nice. But like, what the hell? You know, like that's terrifying. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you are going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. 
And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yep. And that story kind of points toward why <laughs> when I said earlier, like, actually, it would still be problematic. Like, that's actually one of the, the big reasons is that when you get to the consent conversation, alcohol and blackouts in particular become a huge wrench in there because... You can't remember what you did, and it's not necessarily true that the other person knew that you were in a blackout. They so don't, you can't necessarily tell that you someone can't exactly you can tell if they're ridiculously drunk. So what you can tell are secondary signs of intoxication. Those would be known, you know, slurring of speech, stumbling when you walk. But as you probably know, there are people that can be incredibly loaded. And recite the alphabet perfectly. Mm -hmm. And then there are people that have two drinks and they've got like the lampshade on their head and they're falling down. So it, it's very individual. And, you know, I will tell you there are a couple of red flags for people that might be in blackouts. One of them is that some, some people get this real glazed over look in their eye, kind of like an unplugged look. Like it's, I've heard it called like a zombie look. Um, the other one is that they will repeat what they told you about two minutes ago or one minute ago. And this is a classic thing that drunks do because, and again, it's because that hippocampus has been disabled. And so they can't remember that they already, you know, they'll say like, didn't you love that Cowboys game? And, you know, you say, yeah, it was great. And then two minutes later, they're like, didn't you love that Cowboys game? And you're thinking like, oh my God, did you not remember that you just said that? And they don't, they don't remember it. So that's the other red flag. But of course, in a lot of these situations, so, so when these things go to, like when, when they become legal issues, a lot of times they're looking at like, were there signs of secondary intoxication? But one of the problems you have is that in most of these scenarios, everyone's drunk. Nobody's yeah. really noticing. It's like, possible both people are in a blackout and it's exactly if you're not passed out, right? And so you're not passed out must. and you have agency and what you're doing um, might not be something you would normally do because that's actually, you know, why people drink. It's that behavioral randomizer that I, that we talked about before. It's like throwing the dice on the table. You know, when mm -hmm. I was in a blackout, I knew that I was very sexually aggressive. It was something that was actually kind of embarrassing to me. Like I, cause I was inappropriately sexually aggressive, you know, like I'd go up to like random guys and be like, Hey, you know, and it's just not, <laughs> not, the guys were like, oh, my God, no, thank you. Thank you. No, I don't. I, some, please. And in the morning, you're like, thank you. for." <laughs> well, in the morning, I was humiliated. You don't remember it, right? <laughs> I was humiliated. I mean, I, I just was like, you know, I would hear these stories about me kind of slithering up to these guys and throwing myself at them. I mean, you know, I, w I was really embarrassed by it. Um, embarrassed by this sexual aggressiveness that came out. But I knew that that was, you know, look. I'm disinhibited. That's what alcohol does. Is it like uncorsets 
all these things that in your normal waking life, they kind of, in my case, you know, kind of torture you. Like I was this, I was this person that was like kind of in the prison of my own self-consciousness. I was constantly thinking about what you thought about me and what, what, you know, how I looked here and, you know, all these things are going on in my mind. And alcohol was this magical elixir that lifted that. And, you know, if I were able to stay in the place where I could just experience that release, then I would probably still be doing it. But what happened for me is that I could, I just continually drank past that place. <laughs> and when I did, you know, sometimes it could be fun. Sometimes it was no big deal. And then sometimes it was like thunderously bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have so many questions for you, but to start, Lots of people may not have read your book. So will you yeah. just tell us about it? You said you wrote it in early sobriety. How sober were you when you actually wrote the book? So I was about six months sober when I wrote a personal essay for uh, the magazine that I was working at at the time, which was Salon. And I ran the personal essay section. I wrote a personal essay about quitting drinking. And it was the first time that I thought, oh, my gosh, I think there's a book in this. Which is really funny because yeah. I'd always been your friend at the bar that was going to write a book and was like, I'm going to write a book. And I never, ever wrote a book, <laughs> you know, and I really thought when I quit drinking that that part of my life was over. And so this was sort of a surprise to be like, oh, wait, maybe there's more here. So six months sober is around when I started thinking about that. And one of the things I was thinking about because I was reading books like crazy. I mean, I stayed home a lot and I was. I am a kind of introvert mixed with an extrovert. I'm like exactly 50% on the spectrum. And when I first quit drinking, it was like the introvert in me, like just like way came back. So I just wanted to be like reading books and alone. And I was reading a lot of those books. That's where I came up with the idea of telling the story. But for better or worse, at the time I thought it was worse. Now I think it's better. It took me quite a while to write that book, mm -hmm. you know. And what was nice about that was that it wasn't a newly sober person writing that book. It was somebody, you know, that book travels along with me for the first five years of my sobriety. Um, so uh, the book tells the story of really like how I fell in love with alcohol and then why I had to walk away. And, you know, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and my family had moved here from the East Coast. And I think there was an early feeling of kind of not belonging and that followed me around for a lot of my childhood. I think I had in many ways a safe and lovely good childhood, but it was kind of a lonely childhood. And I discovered booze really early. Uh, I used to steal sips of my parents' beer that was in the fridge and I started to steal more of them because I liked the way it felt. And, um, you know, my parents are such non-alcoholics. My mom was putting half a beer in, a, in the fridge. I'm still like, what? Who does that? But my mom does that. And so, you know, I knew from a very young age that I, A, loved the taste, which I think is unusual, but I'm Irish and Finnish. And I just, I feel like the champion dog of binge drinking. Um, Like I was bred for this. And, uh, and also, you know, that I liked the way it felt. It felt, I felt right. And um, so fast forward to when I'm an adolescent, 
I'm around 11 or 12 and I'm hanging out with, um, my older cousin who is 16 and doing all the things that 16 year olds do. And I end up going to a party with her and she was quite the protector, but I guess she had her, she was doing some other things and I end up drinking at that party and I got very, very drunk. And I remember it almost like a finding God moment. You know, it was like the way that alcohol made me feel was the way that I always wanted to feel forever and ever. It was like being pierced by divine light. You know, it was just like, ah, oh, I don't have this heavy tyranny of the self that I've been carrying around, especially like, remember, I'm like 11, 12 years old right now. Like that is like the height. For me, that was like the height of adolescent misery. And it just released its grip. Um, but that night I got very drunk and I had a blackout and it was the first time that I realized what a blackout was. And, um, you know, my cousin the next day was like, do you remember doing this? Do you remember doing that? I thought, Oh, this is crazy. I can't believe that you could do something and not remember it. That just seems insane. And so that spooked me so badly that even though I continued drinking through my high school years, I really didn't drink like that until I got to college. And it was my years in college that really like exploded my drinking life. And they also exploded my social life. I mean, that was in many ways one of the happiest times of my life. I look back on that time with so much fondness, but alcohol was absolutely the glue. I remember when I, when I graduated, I moved in by myself and I remember thinking like, Oh, good. I can finally quit drinking. Because my body was like, I was tired and I was sick and I was heavy and I was like, everything was sort of like wildly out of balance. But then I just started drinking by myself. Like I started getting a bottle of wine and drinking it while I was, I, I, I got a job at the Austin Chronicle, which was the uh, alternative news weekly there. And when I would get all kind of like gummed up with writer's block, you know, it was like, Ah, oh, I know what I can do. Just uncork a bottle of wine. And I started doing that. And, you know, Austin in the 90s, working at an alternative news weekly was just a really ideal place to be a binge drinker, you know? I, I and, and so a lot of the, the behaviors that, uh, I think in an earlier generation or maybe with a different person, they might have thought were contained. Uh, constrained to college, I carried those across my 20s and then into my 30s. You know, eventually I moved to New York. I, again, at every pivot in my life, I would always be like, okay, now I'm going to quit drinking. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to lose weight. Those were like the two things, you know, I'm going to get it together. I'm not going to drink like a slob. And I don't know if you've ever like, I mean, the idea of quitting drinking in New York is like, the idea of like staying like dry in the pool, you know, it's just like you can't. Yeah. I mean, I think the drinkers surround themselves with drinkers so much that anything you can't imagine quitting because I was a daily drinker. I mean, until literally I quit at age 40. I was a 365 night a year. You're feeling like the sore throat and the fever, but I wouldn't tell my husband because then it would be weird if I drank. So I'd pretend not to be sick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of I did have a relationship, a very serious relationship for about two years and we lived together. But most of my drinking years, I was living alone. 
And I think that was kind of like a chicken and the egg thing, you know, like one, but one of the things about it was that I could be unwatched. And I, you know, when I was living with my boyfriend, he was, there were a pair of eyes on me. Yeah. And he would know, like, you know, hey, look, we just opened this bottle. Why is it empty? Or you said you were going to have three drinks last night. Why did you come home after 12? And, you know, that was difficult. And it was the source of fights and tension between us, a lot of of tension. And so when I got up to New York, I was living alone and I could drink however I wanted. And I went out to the bars and drank a lot, but there was a lot of me just drinking in the apartment by myself. And so it became kind of like my all, all weather companion, you know, because it's, at some point it's like, I do this when I'm, when I'm joyful. But then it was like, but then I do this when I'm sad. And then it was like, but I do this when I'm bored. And then it's like, I do this when I'm excited. You know, like, like it's basically just like the answer to any kind of emotional anything was to drink and or so like, by the drink because i drink right you pull the what they call it, the geographic and you know think that in a new situation you're not going to drink the way you did and it's like the idea of you know wherever you go there you are i dragged it with me across my 20s and into my 30s and so by my early 30s i'm starting to realize like this isn't working for me i had realized that for a long time but i thought i would grow out of it <laughs> I think by my 30s, I'm realizing I'm not going to grow out of it. Yeah. And or not magically. And for me, part of what really caught my attention was that my friends were just losing patience with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it wasn't funny anymore. And there were, you know, there were some uncontrollable nights of where the hell am I? Like, you know, I remember when I woke up, the first thing I would think is like, do, is this my ceiling? That was always my first question because the number of times that I woke up and it was like, damn it, that's not my ceiling. Um, and then I would have to figure out where I was. And sometimes it was just like a friend's house. And then sometimes it was some guy's house and maybe I knew him and maybe I didn't. And then I'd have to kind of like, you know, reverse engineer how I got there and and how I was going to get home and who did I need to apologize to. And it was just, it was an exhausting way to live. But my friends telling me like that, you know, you're embarrassing me or this isn't funny or I'm worried about you hurt me so deeply because I had become a drinker in some ways because I'm a people pleaser. I wanted to be the kind of girl that you wanted to have at the party. So this news that was coming back to me, which is that people didn't didn't want me at the party. It was devastating. But I didn't know how to live without the alcohol. Because it had become so thoroughly threaded into my life. It had become something that I did in every social setting. And so it's I did highly addictive, right? That's something weirdly people don't talk about. Highly, highly addictive. You know, and I think I thought the addiction really only had to do with like if you don't drink, you get the DTs. And I never did. And so I thought, oh, I'm fine. But I'll tell you what I did. A couple things. One is that my anxiety went up and I had a hammering heart and I had a hard time sleeping. And that's those are all very classic symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. But I think the like behavioral habits 
were just so much harder for me. Yeah. You know, setting away the physical addiction of it, it was this behavioral addiction that what do you do after work? You drink. What do you do with your friends? You drink. I just, I didn't have any other, like, what do you do when you go to a restaurant? Like, you have to drink. Oh, yeah. I didn't know how to behave and operate in any other world. So it, by the time I'm 33 and 34, I'm going in and out of recovery rooms. I'm trying to hold, like, I don't want to be sober, but I can't seem to get a hold on my drinking. And, you know, I'm just in this spin cycle of like, just it's, everything's uncomfortable, right? Because when I'm trying to quit, I'm uncomfortable. And when I go back to it, I'm uncomfortable because maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And it's just all of this is just ricocheting back and forth until finally I kind of I stop fighting and uh, and I quit at 35 a couple months before I turned 36. Yeah. And you said that you had said many times, you know, that, OK, this is it. And then you go back to it. I think everybody does that. That's what literally your book, the reason I was so drawn to it was every emotion you were talking about was one that I'd had the very first time I drank later than you. Yeah. Um, I think I only drank twice in high school, Mm -hmm. both times total blackouts. And I thought it was amazing, but I don't remember it. Like that's what's so crazy to me. I thought they were the best nights ever. And I literally don't remember almost anything that happened. And I was so ill the next day, like so ill. And yeah, I blacked out, drank, I mean, frightening amounts of alcohol the first two times I, I drank. And that was how I wanted to drink, right? I wanted to get to the point of blackout because that was when my brain switched off and I could have crazy adventures. And like you, like what I drank just sort of shifted. I was in my early 20s and I started drinking wine alone in my apartment because I was terrified of my job and yep. the imposter syndrome and the loneliness. Yep. And I, like you said, like college, it, it was one of the happiest times in my life, which I think is what so many people, you know, I've interviewed my husband on this podcast and talking about, you know, why it's, it was really hard to give up drinking. And I quit when I had two kids and was 40. And I've been with my husband since I was 22, 23. Like that was different about our stories. And I think I was in some ways very lucky in that he was always taking care of me. And I was always surrounded. I didn't go out drinking a lot alone unless I was at a business conference or got stuck in an airport or, you know, all once I was out of my 20s. And so my colleagues got me back to my hotel room. I remember nothing on business conferences, um, which is crazy. But so I was sort of the pass out on the couch, don't remember the end of shows drinkers. Mm-hmm. But he said to me kind of the same thing. Like, I was like, look, you knew you knew who I was when you married me. You liked it. You know, love me. Don't judge me. And he was right. kind of like, you have an eight-year-old and a two-year-old. I kind of thought you would grow out of it. <laughs> like, no offense, girl. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the mom part of it is so interesting. Um, You know, if you look at drinking statistically, that tends to be at least historically where drinking kind of fell off a cliff because people can't, parenthood is when you kind of can't keep up that it's drinking not life. Anymore. Having but not anymore. But now it's, it, it's, up. it's a really interesting shift where it has become very socially acceptable to drink as a parent and as a mother. And, you know, I remember those, like all these years of, um, you know, reading like little jokes about, you know, mommy drinks because you cry. I mean, but also what what's underneath all of that is that motherhood is also a lonely, scary and alienating experience. And it can be mind numbingly boring, too. Oh, and yeah. so what are you going to do to kind of nurse yourself through that? And alcohol becomes this thing. And I, you know, it my life turned out I would have loved to have had children. I didn't. And it is kind of somewhere between like choice and circumstance. Like it's kind of like, like I, there's certain places where I chose that. There's other places where I wanted that and it didn't work out. Um, you know, and, and it's part of why I wish, I do wish I had gotten sober earlier. Um, I got sober at 35 and was like, you know, I spent the first several years engaged in this, you know, the process of recovery, writing this book. This book came out when I was 40 and it was kind of like, okay, now I'm going to think about having kids. And it's like, 40 is not the time. 40 is not the time, you know, because, you know, you start having, then it gets a little, I'm not saying you can't have children. I, I had my daughter at 39. I'm with you though. Like, yeah, like it's, I was like, I am too fucking old for this shit when she's screaming. Well, you just have to, you know, you have to marshal a lot of resources. A lot of times there can be IVF involved. There's, you know, and like, but the big thing for me at that point was I didn't have a partner. I wanted to have a child with a partner. And uh, so, you know, I didn't end up having kids, but I have a lot of friends who are mothers and I have watched, I've worked with several mothers who are, you know, trying to give up that drinking and it's it's really difficult and unfortunately i think one of the things that startles them is when there is a near catastrophe and mm-hmm. unfortunately a near catastrophe is very close to a catastrophe so you're really playing with fire at that point yeah and again i think i was just very lucky that my husband was around a lot um 
because I'm like, I didn't do anything that wrong, but there was always someone sort of picking up my slack always. Yeah. And thank God. But I work with a lot of mothers, a lot of working mothers, and it's, there is this huge mommy wine culture. I mean, huge. And it's also because it's somehow like you were talking about this badge of honor, this empowered woman. Mm-hmm. It is a way for women to say, I am more than my children. I am not yeah. the mom who, you know, dedicates her entire life to her children. I'm both a great mom, but I also quote unquote have, fun, can still have fun. Right. And then I, I totally think so. Yeah. It, it becomes this signal that you have like a personality, like a rich personality. Oh, yeah. You're cool, you know, and you're not going to be one of these people that's just sitting around talking about like, where's the, you know, school portrait going to be or whatever. Like, like there's so much more depth to you. Yeah. I know. I, I, I get that. And, 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 it, and I, it's a weird, shameful thing too. And I think that just happens. You know, you get older and you also drink a lot more because that's how alcohol works. And mm-hmm. suddenly it's not funny anymore. So it's both a badge of honor, but nobody sees that you go to the mommy play date, drink a lot or go out to dinner with the girls after work and drink. But then you come home and open another bottle of wine. And it's so important to you. Yeah, I remember. I mean, when I would go out with my friends um, to bars and then I would come home. We just quit drinking too early. You know, like it just I needed to keep going. I mean, this was one of the things that I found unmanageable for me ultimately was that once I started, I just did not want to stop. I remember um, also like going out for drinks with a friend, saying goodbye, like at the subway and then going to pick up a bottle of wine and running into her. And she was like, hi, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I just needed this for tomorrow. Like, but I mean, this just remembered. Yeah, yeah, just remembered. I've got to bring this to for a gift for somebody. You know, it's like that was my routine was, you know, go out with the group, but then I can't stop. Yeah. So I need to pick, you know, I need to come home and pick up some more, you know, and I'm going to have to keep going. And, uh, you know, you were probably I, very lucky that you weren't driving in New York, too. I mean, well, that like- absolutely, you know, during the worst years of my drinking in New York, I had a boyfriend that would drive me. I'm not sure he ever, you know, who really should have been driving, but you know, but he was the more responsible one. Um, and then, yeah, that's one of the reasons why drinking is so, is so wild in New York. I mean, this predates Uber. Now I guess everybody can have this, Yeah. but, um, but you know, definitely at the time there was this culture of, you know, you just kind of step onto the subway or more often if you're drunk, you know, you just kind of like pour yourself into a, a cab or a car service and, and yeah. get home. Yeah, my husband used to say to me, he was like, I don't understand you drink until it's gone, like you run out or you pass out. And this was like Wednesday nights. And I was like, I know, I just, I drink and I never want the feeling to end. Like, I'm so happy. I think that if I just keep drinking, it'll never end. And I was like an early pass out girl. Like, that was the funny thing. I would like drink fast and pass out. So it ended so much faster than, you know, I remember New Year's Eve, we went away with no kids with all of our friends from our 20s. And just, I didn't make it to midnight. I missed the entire night. Um, But I thought, you know, 
I thought it was going to be fantastic. So you mentioned earlier, and I just want to ask, yeah. um, predisposition or factors that factor in to being susceptible to blackout. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, like I said, it's, it's genetic and nobody quite knows why. Um, it's like some people are able to roll their tongue and other people aren't, but there are definitely like risk factors for blackout that I always make like to make sure people know. One of them is drinking on an empty stomach. That's probably like the number one thing. And I was, by the way, I was always doing that because I was like, I'm going to save calories. Like I'm just going to oh, drink yeah. my dinner tonight. I take my calories and wine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then the other one is doing shots. You know, really what uh, blackouts do, they come from a spike in the blood alcohol content. So it's not just the level of your what's called BAC or blood alcohol content. It's how fast you get there. Um, but the other risk factor is being a woman because mm -hmm. women don't metabolize alcohol as fast as men do, which is why the binge drinking guidelines for us are four and they're five for them. It's not just because we're smaller, although we often are, but it's also that like there's more fat in our body. And so like it's this whole biological thing that we're, like we actually metabolize alcohol slower than men do. And so even though it's about like men drink more than women do on average, um, I think women black out slightly more than than men do. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, like sometimes I didn't even realize I had blacked out. I remember my my one of my biggest drinking girlfriends and I went to a wedding without our husbands down in Santa Barbara and we woke up the next morning, gorgeous wedding. And literally in our hotel room, we're like, our husbands would be so proud of us. We were so good. We're like, yeah, like they would be so because they were both like Jesus girls. Like, you know, we were yeah. like 27 and we walked into the brunch the next morning and literally everybody was like how are you guys feeling that was crazy i mean apparently we were like slapping the groom right fathers on his ass and like i jumped yep. on my best friend's husband's back and like zero record like we never would have known if people didn't yep. have open bar wedding reception blackout stories are one of the most common I mean, it's really? just, and it's, it's, I've heard so many of them. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just like, it's a heightened moment. And then like, all you're not your watching, all your friends are there. You're not watching what you're drinking. You know, there's kind of like a release from like the stress around it. And it's just, yeah, like it's very common. And it's also, and, and in fact, the last time I ever drank was at the reception to a wedding. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. A, I, I was at a friend's reception and it, you know, I don't remember how I got home. I, you know, I remember having a great time and there were all these like interesting people there and like kind of like famous writers and I really wanted to impress them. And then it's almost like a smash cut. Like I wake up in my bed and I'm like, how did I get here? What happened? What did I do? And in my mind, I'm wondering if I did all the things that you just said that you did. Like how, like, did I go around and like, slap the ass of the groom and like and like this was like we were older i was like 35 oh, yeah. years old you know like it wasn't like a 22 year old doing this like it was uh yeah and i i just remember thinking like oh my god i'm gonna be like this for the rest of my life like i'm just gonna be this little lush that people have to 
you know, carry out of the bar and, and take care of. And, and like you said, when you said it's not funny anymore, because yeah. we were told when we were younger, I mean, all of our girlfriends tell us, oh, it's funny. It's no big deal. It was awesome. That was epic. You know, it was not funny. I had been living under the illusion that it was this hero's tale for a very long time. And I was starting to realize it was very much the opposite of that. And so I, I remember feeling just absolute despair. And I, I thought, well, I'd, I'd tried many times to quit drinking and failed. So I couldn't even trust myself anymore because every time I said, I'm going to quit, I just took it back three or four days later. And I was so sick of that. Like I was so sick of even hearing myself say that, that I didn't even make a big proclamation. I was just like, I did call my mom. And I think when I called my mom, it was, there was something of like, you know, when you can just kind of tell the full truth to somebody and it, it makes, it changes things because now I was going to be accountable. I wasn't, I, you know, I, nobody knew, nobody knew. And so somebody could actually was see your mom that, worried about your drinking so my mom knew that i was a heavy drinker but i was living in new york and so i was really able to frame how i drank to her and i also am a very willful young woman and so you know she wasn't as heavy a drinker as i was and i was always sort of like mom everyone drinks like this like i know you didn't but like believe me it's really normal you know and 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 i had persuaded her basically that mm -hmm. my drinking while it was unusually high it wasn't as dangerous as it turned out it was. I mean, I think when she read my book, then it was sort of like, oh my God, yeah, all this stuff was going on and I didn't know. And I should have, you know, there was a lot of mother sort of like, I should have known. And it was like, look, I did a really good job hiding it from you. Like, like you, you can't have known. I, I wanted you not to know. I didn't want people to intervene, but I did like, I got real with her. And I think that was the beginning for me of starting out on this other this other way that was a life without alcohol. I love that you wrote in your book um, about sobriety being sort of the plot twist. You said, I can't believe I'd once thought the only interesting part of a story was the heroine when she was drinking. Yeah. Um, sobriety wasn't boring. Sobriety was the plot twist because quitting drinking was literally my worst case scenario i i was i yeah. didn't even know what sober people did i was like do they just sit around on it staring at each other on a thursday night like i just i was like oh my god it's gonna be like i'm gonna be bored and boring and deprived and isolated and life is going to suck for the rest of my life which is crazy but tell me about the plot twist but that's a hundred percent what I thought and what so many people think. And I think it's really interesting because it goes back to kind of what you said about what you wanted a drinking life to be when you were younger. Like this whole thing of like, you don't even know what's going to happen. Like it's just going to, you like, like adventure awaits. But then what happens is that a drinking life is actually like a life stuck on repeat. Like it's, it's literally just the same thing over and over again. And so what, yeah, it's Groundhog's Day. You know, and so what happens when you quit drinking is that you open up this possibility for all these other things to happen. You know, is it boring? Yes, at first. Guess what? Then you actually learn what it is that you like to do so that you're not bored. You take agency in your own life. You start to discover things that you had always 
wanted to do or dreamed about doing, but been afraid to do. You know, like I, I always feel like, you know, I wanted to be this strong, confident woman, but alcohol is a crutch. And, and what do we know about using a crutch? As long as you have a crutch, you do not learn to stand. And it's not until you throw that away that you really get that I really got the thing that I had been drinking for, which was deep intimacy with people when I spoke to them. You know, like how many conversations did I have with my new best friend that uh I didn't remember the next day? Yeah. And, you know, and it was like, I could really be present. I found that my friendships deepened when I got the courage up to finally date somebody, which took a while because I was really freaked out. You know, like I'd been such a kind of wild slut in my, the last years of my drinking. You know, like I just it it just was always like, I can't I don't even know how this happened. I don't know how it works. Don't make me do it. But I started dating and intimacy with men was so much better. You know, my writing felt more honest and deeper. You know, things that I had been drinking for were eluding me. Mm -hmm. They were getting farther and farther away when I was drinking. And then when I stopped, it was like I could I could finally reach them on my own. And, um, you know, I do think, yeah, sobriety is the plot twist. I mean, I didn't know that I was going to like all those years that I thought I was going to write one of these books about another, you know, marauding, you know, high adventure drinker that falls off her bar stool, like one more story from a drunk writer. And like, when do I write my book? When I quit drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't have time. You're losing all those hours. And I felt really ill a lot of the time. I didn't realize until I got away from alcohol how... I was going through life feeling bas basically sick every day. Yes. And I've been doing it for so many years, I didn't even realize it. Yeah. B most people by that point are kind of existing with a low-key hangover all the time. It's kind of like this scrim over your life. And you don't realize that yeah. it that it happened. And then, and then it lifts. And it lifts and you're at least I was like, oh my God, like I love waking up now. Like I'm like, oh my God, this is the best part of the day. I'm a morning person. I love it. Like, you know, it's I know. It's, and people who are drinking and listening to this, like they hate me. They don't believe you, which is yeah. I didn't believe me. Yeah. You know, or you believe, but you're like, well, you guys, I mean, I used to be like, yeah, but you didn't love drinking the way I did. That's you what know? I thought. That's you what I thought. But but you must have been one of those take it or leave drinkers. Like anyone gets to this point who doesn't love hate it, you know. Yeah, I just when I heard people talk about quitting drinking and how great life was, I just really thought you weren't a real drinker. And, um, you know, and 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 honestly, I, I felt that for a long time because the first year of my sobriety was really hard. Yeah, it, it really sucked. It's not like it, it wasn't like I guess for some people. They quit drinking and things get better pretty immediately. They start to feel better. They look better. I was a friggin' grump. I hated it. I hated everything. Like, I was really cranky. I didn't like being, I was going to AA meetings. And I still go to AA meetings, but like, I didn't like the program. I thought it was kind of corny. And, you know, I, I just, I was resisting this whole other way of life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was uncomfortable for a while. But, uh, 
all I can say is that, uh, man, I, I just don't know anybody that loved alcohol the way I did. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, there are people that loved it as much, but I mean, like, I loved it. And, yeah. but the, the truth is, is like, there's a time in your life where like. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one day at a time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. You've kind of had your fun, you know, like you've, you've logged your time. You have all those memories, like women will say to me all the time, but it wasn't always like this, but it was a lot of fun. You spend your whole life trying to get back to that when, you know, 90% of my life when I was stopping drinking was significantly worse. I mean, I would berate myself first thing. I hated looking at my bloodshot eyes. I felt shaky. I didn't want anyone to get to know me too well. I was ill. You know, when you look back on college or your early 20s, even though I was like throwing a bile and sweating on the floor, I'm like, damn, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Just crazy. I know. But it's also like it's a mask that you can wear so that people don't really see you and that you don't really see your own life. And I think one of the questions that you have to ask at the point that you come to where you're listening to a podcast about quitting drinking or about life after drinking, you have to kind of ask, like, what are you, what are you trying to drink your way out of? Yeah. You know, like what, what are you drinking to avoid? What is it? And is there any way that you could change that so that you don't have to drink your way out of it? Like, how can you build a life that you don't have to drink your way out of? You said something, I read a bunch of articles you wrote, and one of the things that I loved that you read, or that you said, was in Vogue, I believe, and you said, in sobriety, you have to look around, and you 
and figure out how can I make this life better than my drinking life? Because if it's not, there's too much temptation to go back. I've found that too. A hundred percent. Because if you got sober and then your life just stayed the same and it was just sucky, I mean, like willpower will only get you so far, right? I mean, at the end of the day, like I'm kind of a selfish person. Like I want to see rewards and I want things to be better for me. And the reason that I've been sober 13 years now is because I don't want to lose what I have. Yeah. I don't want to lose this. I don't like I have a real awareness that for whatever fleeting momentary feeling of joy I might experience, the the cost of it, the cost of it to my soul, to my work, to my daily, you know, to my sleep, all of it, it's just too high. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could talk to you all day. I've underlined so many pieces in your book. I'd love to read you, but I won't just because you, you truly, and I do not say this to everyone, like you are a great writer, um, oh, a really you. great writer. I do want to let you know. So I texted some girlfriends and I put it out on social that I was going to interview you. I honestly was so excited. And my friend Margaret texted me back with a picture and an underline of your book. And she said, if you get a chance, let her know that this one sentence at the end of her introduction literally changed the trajectory of my life. And I'm not being overdramatic. And it was the line, there was something fundamentally wrong about losing the narrative of my own life. That made me tear up to hear that. Thank you. I mean, yeah, um, truly. So obviously, anyone who has not read this book, please, please do. It's one of my favorites. There's so much good stuff in here. Um, but how can people find you, follow you, all that good yeah. stuff? Yeah, so I'm on the socials. I'm on Twitter at Sarah Heppola. And there's also a Facebook group. I think you just search for Sarah Heppola Blackout and I'm on Instagram, the Sarah Heppola Experience. And then I also have a website, sarahheppola.com. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, I do a weekly culture podcast with my partner, Nancy Rommelman. It's called Smoke em If You Got em, And we talk about what's going on in the world right now. We're both journalists. Um, and, uh, and I'm working on a second memoir right now, which is about being single and not having kids, but having wanted them and going through those years of that window closing and kind of stepping up to the life that you have. Um, it's called unattached. Is it post drinking or does it include drinking and go through? It includes some drinking, but it's mostly post drinking. Okay. Yeah. It mostly covers my forties, but it definitely dips back into some of the like formative relationships I had during my drinking years. Yeah. And on Smoke em, if you've got them, because this is going to come out in January and dry January is huge. Are you doing anything on that or or not so much? Is it more politics and, and other parts? Uh, of it? You know, that's a good question. We are a very fly by the seat of your pants kind of operation over there. So I don't know if we'll do something. We'll probably usually do like a first of the year uh, something something. So we'll, yeah. we'll see what we do. No, because it's getting so huge. When I quit drinking, I first tried it 10 years ago. Of course, uh, finally stopped almost seven and a half years ago now. And dry January wasn't even a thing. And now like over 30% of 
American adults take part in it. So that's very cool. It's wild. That wasn't a thing when I quit drinking. Now it's a big thing. I think it's, you know, um, I think it's a really cool idea to just kind of see what your life is like without alcohol. I think one of the fundamental questions you can ask yourself is not, am I an alcoholic? Because you can get caught up in that definition. Oh, yeah. It's, is my life better without alcohol? Is alcohol serving my life? I think that's one of the, the better kind of foundational questions to ask yourself. And you can run that up the flagpole. And you also can have support of your friends that are trying it too, which I think is super cool. So, yeah. And you can stop earlier and just get that, that contrast of, do I feel better without it? I yes. didn't. I worried about my drinking and just tried to moderate. I tried to I moderate for years. Everybody does. And it's, it's almost impossible. It, it was so much easier to stop. It, it was. And nobody believes that, but it is. If you don't, if you don't start, you don't have to try to moderate. So thank you so much for coming. Thank on you so talk. much. It was so much fun to talk to you. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.